Hello and welcome to the Nature Unplugged podcast, where we are all about cultivating consciousness in the digital age. Let's get going. Welcome to the Nature Unplugged podcast with me, your host, Sebastian Sloven, and I'm very excited today to have a, an incredibly special guest, uh, award-winning journalist and author, Richard Liu. Richard, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Yeah. So I imagine that a lot of our listeners know about you, but for those who don't, I want to share your bio before we get into it. Um, and uh, so I'll jump into that really quick. Okay, Richard Louvre is a journalist and author of 10 books, including Last Child in the Woods, The Nature Principle, and Vitamin N. His newest book is Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. Translated into 22 languages, his, his books have helped launch an international movement to connect children, their families, and communities to nature. He speaks frequently around the world, including at the American Academy of Pediatrics National Conference, First White House Summit on Environmental Education, the Congress of New Urbanism, International Healthy Parks Conference in Melbourne, Australia, and the National Friends of Nature Conference in Beijing, China. Louvre has written for the New York Times, the Times of London, Parents Magazines, and many other publications. He has appeared on CBS This Morning, NBC's Today Show, ABC's Good Morning America, NPR's Talk of the Nation, married to Kathy Frederick Louvre. He is the father of two young men, Jason and Matthew. He would rather hike than write. Well, awesome, awesome bio. So pumped, so pumped to have you here. And so today, of course, we're going to be talking about um, your new, your latest book, A Wild Calling. Um, but before we get into it, I'd love to just hear, you know, you've been doing this work, writing about connection with nature and children and all this stuff for a long time, but I'd love to hear a little bit about you know, how uh, like some of your early experiences in nature and how that may impact you, have impacted you today? Well, first, Sebastian, congratulations on your book, which is quite moving. I've got it upstairs, and uh, uh, I hope it's doing very well. It deserves to. Uh, Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, we had the chance to meet a few years yeah. ago at a conference you spoke at, and I shared yeah. the book with you. Thank right. you very much. That means a lot to me. It's, it's a fine book. Um, and, and well, you know, I get asked that question, uh, where did that start? I, you know, I actually was a kid once and I spent a lot of time, much of my time in the woods behind our suburban house uh, outside of Kansas City. And with my dog, whose name was Banner, who I wrote, I write about Banner in Our Wild Collie. He's a collie, of course, <laughs> you know, it was the 1950s early 60s and uh, uh, I, I found something larger there in those woods than my parents and, and their problems and I was very lucky to have parents who loved nature and a mother who loved animals and so I, I lucked out in that regard um, but I, 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 I spent a lot of time in those woods and uh, I, I describe in, in Our Wild Calling how 
I, this dog that I had, which actually is what led to the writing of Our Wild Calling, Remembering My Dog. Um, the other books that I wrote, uh, Last Child in the Woods and, and Vitamin N and Nature Principle and all that were more about uh, the general disconnection uh, from the natural world. But uh, I confess in one of those books in the Nature Principle that I'm, nat I, I'm, I'm plant blind. I don't really see plants, I should, and I'm, I'm working on that. Yeah. But I like lizards. <laughs> You know, the, the lizard under the plant is what catches my attention. Yeah. And so as I write about Banner, he um, spent that time with me, much time in those woods. And uh, often my parents didn't know where I was, but my dog always did. And uh, Banner was an extraordinary dog. I never make fun of Lassie, the TV show, the old one. You know? Yeah. Timmy, uh, actually, I didn't like Timmy. It was, it was the kid before Timmy that I liked, Jeff, on that early, early 50s show that they were running in reruns. Um, you know, when Timmy was caught in the, or Jeff was caught in the well, Lassie, go get mom. Yeah. And Lassie would, of course, and everybody kind of laughs at that, you know, about Lassie saving those kids. Well, one time I was in the woods, and I was down the creek, and I went through the ice. It was a very deep ravine creek with muddy sides, and I couldn't get out. I mean, I was I was not underwater. I was up to about my knees or halfway up my legs, but I couldn't get out because the more I pawed at the at the snow, the icier it became, the slipper. So uh, Banner disappeared. I said, "Well, thanks a lot, buddy," <laughs> and, and I was a little scared. And what Banner did whenever I got into trouble that he thought my mother should know about, he would go home. And my mother always knew that I was up to no good if Banner showed up, <laughs> if I wasn't around. And um, I don't think she was around. She must have gone to the store or something because Banner came back. Okay. And memory is tricky. You know, we right. aggrandize our memory sometimes. And I may have done that, but I don't think so. My memory is very clear, Banner at the other end of a long branch pulling hard and me climbing up that branch. And that branch hadn't been there before. Yeah. Now, again, my memory may be faulty, um, but that's what I remember, getting out of that creek because Banner came back. And he did other things, though. He One time we were out in the front yard and, and he just disappeared and he ran up the street and there was a bad dog up the street, a bad dog. It was a mean dog. Yeah. And it was in midair, jumping toward a woman who, who had her Pekingese dog in her arms, stepping out of her front door to get the paper. And Banner caught that dog in midair. She came down uh, later to thank us uh, for Banner. And he pulled my little brother out of the street. I remember this vividly. This yeah. is not. Uh, by the diapers, you know, when he'd crawl out in the street. He'd do things like that. And in those days, there weren't very many fences. And so the dogs led a social life. Right. And uh, Banner was the champion of the little dogs. I saw him get in many fights with big dogs, actually protecting the little dogs. Wow. Our cat hated Banner. I mean, no, I'm sorry. Banner hated our cat. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Did not like that cat. But every morning, we'd let the cat and the dog out 
to do their duty, as we called it, in the basement door. And the cat would walk out the door underneath Banner between his legs, and Banner would go along with it. All right, come on. And um, because of the big dogs, because... Right. And, and so I watched Banner. And as the many years went by, obviously, and long after Banner was gone, I would, I would think about that, and I, I became convinced that Banner taught me a kind of ethics, by example. And I mentioned that one day to an animal behavioralist, and he dismissed it. He said, no, nah, you're just, no, 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 a dog is a dog, a person is a person. And, and he, he really dismissed me and dismissed it. Yeah. And I, I wrote about that once in my column at the, in the Union Tribune. Well, when I was researching our wild calling, which is somewhat about pets, but it's mainly about wild animals, uh, I looked, I was studying how uh, wolves were domesticated by people and started as long as 30,000 years ago, a long time ago. And one theory, the, the majority theory, is that the people domesticated wolves. We threw the bones out beyond the fire and the wolves came closer. And we got along after a while right. and found them useful. Uh, and they found us useful because we threw bones out. And um, that's one theory. It's probably true. But there's another theory that I think is probably also true. And this is the theory that wolves domesticated us. Huh. And there are some German scientists who have written about this quite a bit, and I found their papers. And they suggests that early human beings watched wolves. We watched how they hunted. We followed them to eat their, the bones they left behind. Right. And uh, we noticed how the wolves hunted cooperatively right. as a pack and had strategy. Yeah. And maybe we picked that up over time. And the other thing too, is we watch their families. Wolves have very tight families, very uh, families with very clear and loving rules. We watch that too. Primates, early primates, you know, even today that, you know, chimpanzees are kind of nasty little guys, you know, they're interesting and I, I like them and all that, but they're not the most civilized. <laughs> Wolves are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With each other. Right. So maybe we watch that and, and what was neat about those papers that I read, these scientists used the word ethics. Wow. They said, maybe we learned some ethics from these wolves. Well, what I write in our walk calling is just maybe those ethics passed down through 30 years of domestication from wolves to dogs to dogs to dogs and finally to Banner. To be yeah. yeah. He passed them to me. It's incredible. Yeah, so that's a long story. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's really. I think it speaks to though. You you do an incredible job of, I think, articulating something that is, that has been in science previously dismissed as, you know, kind of like woo woo or, you know, uh, overly spiritual. Or, but this deeper connection that I think you do a great job of talking about that, which is really tough to talk about, and um, it's pretty amazing. Well, thanks. And yeah, it, 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 this was the hardest book. I've written 10 books, and this was by far the hardest book to write. Um, because I was trying to, to describe and name something that I certainly didn't understand. 
And I don't think very many people understand it. Um, the best way to tell about that is to tell stories. And, the, and, and I collected lots of stories that are in the book from other people, some few of them are my own, but most of them are other people, about both their relationships with their companion animals, but, but more than that, many more about their encounters or relationships with the wild animals. And these stories have common denominators. So over time, the, the truth of these stories, or multiple truths, emerged from the stories. That took a long time, it took four years to write the book, to research and write it. And I didn't know where it was going in the beginning. I had a feeling. It's like number one rule about book writing for journalists, uh, don't decide to write a book based on a feeling. <laughs> so, but I did. And just to, to, to describe that a little bit, um, the, the book is a search for what I'm about to, describe. Um, one of the stories is told by Paul Dayton, who works at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Yeah. Uh, he's a, a well among oceanographers. He's a famous oceanographer who studies plankton and other small forms of life in the Antarctic and elsewhere. And uh, he's, I think, approaching or over 80 now. And over time, I've gotten to be friends with him. He's a great guy. Um, he told me this story once. He said, when he was a student way back at the University of Washington, he was out in the ocean on the bottom of the ocean uh, collecting samples for his science project as a, as a biology student and collecting lunch because <laughs> he was a starving student. <laughs> right. And he was deep down there in scuba gear on the bottom of the ocean poking around. He was doing something on starfish. He was looking for starfish. And suddenly he felt come above him. He just felt this big presence glide above him and stop. That's really not a good sign. <laughs> and, uh, and he looked up and he saw a tentacle coming down on one side, a long tentacle. He looked up the other side, another tentacle. And he realized that it was a, one of those big Pacific octopus pusses that are have 12 foot wingspan or more and this was a big one and it saw him and, and Paul says at the risk of anthropomorphizing it he said it looked at me decided I was a clam and came down and got me and it did it wrapped him up in its arms people he said people think those arms are soft and spongy far from it they're so hard and you can't move them those arms are remarkable too because each of those arms has essentially a brain an independent brain in it it has a different uh, nervous system than we do. Yeah. And uh, also those arms, the skin of those arms is filled with photons, the cells that are used for sight. And uh, in us and other animals, and now it's not clear that they see with their arms, they don't see with their arms, but Paul says certainly it was getting to know me a lot better. <laughs> and and he, right then he realizes his uh, oxygen was running out. And so with the last of his strength, he pushed off the, uh, the bottom. And he and the octopus started going up and up and up in the column of water toward the surface, a long way. And as they went up, he could feel the razor sharp beak of the octopus coming around his neck until he was looking at the octopus's eye. 
And he said, at that moment, he, he did what prey often does, what the gazelle does in the mouth of the lion. He relaxed. It's an odd phenomenon. Yeah. Involuntarily relaxed. So did the octopus. And loosened his grip a little bit. And he said, at that point, he and the octopus, he said, we made our non-aggression pact. And he laughs when he says this. Right about then, they hit the surface, both of them. And he rips off his mask, and the octopus starts to sink back down. And he's looking down, and the octopus is still looking at him. They're still making eye contact. Yeah. And then the octopus starts to disappear into the darkness. What does Paul do then is the best part of the story. Paul rips off, puts his mask back on and dives after the octopus and chases the octopus down. And he told me this detail that didn't make it into the book because he didn't tell me this when he told me this story. As they went down, they spiraled around each other. Wow. And he ran out of breath again and he, he went back to the surface. I said, why the hell did you do that? Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Why did you do that? Yeah. And, he, and he's a little sheepish about that. And he says, and remember, this is a hardcore scientist. Right. He said, I don't know. Um, he, he said there was something spiritual about that. And he, he's embarrassed to use that word. What he knows for sure is that he did not want those moments to end. That's what I heard from person after person after person who'd had some kind of encounter with a wild animal, whether it was a wolf or coyote or even uh, a paramecium in a jar in a lab. There's a good story a guy tells me about that. Um, again and again, they describe this. They describe also some altered states that they go into. And I collected over 100 stories, and not all of them are in the book. Yeah. Um, and um, another story about a dog, a little boy, this is a short one, a little boy in Toronto, his mother walked into it and she told me this in the living room and, he, and her, six year, her six-year-old son was sitting on the, laying on the, the carpet next to their dog, Jack, with his arm around Jack. Um, and she heard her son say, uh, mommy, I don't have a heart anymore. And she says, what are you saying? And her son, without moving, said, my heart is in Jack. What is that? That permeability, we've all felt that. Yeah. We felt it with people. Yeah. We also feel it with animals, but we don't recognize that often. Um, that permeability, that, that disappearance, or that connection that envelops both entities. Um, another story, I was on a lake outside of San Diego once in my boat, and it has a little electric motor. It was early morning. Nobody was on the lake. It was beautiful that day. I saw on the shore what I thought were two vultures, and they were not vultures. I got up close to them with my quiet electric motor. They were eating a dead carp on the shore. And I got within 20 feet of them. They were two giant golden eagles. You usually don't get within 20 feet of golden eagles. Yeah. And for what seemed like forever, and it's important, that seemed like forever. Right. Um, I, I watched them and they watched me and they would dip down, take a bite and then come back up and look at me, pause, and then go back down, get another bite, come back up, eye contact, 
again and again and again. When I say it seemed like forever, I mean, literally, it felt like forever. Yeah. Um, that's one of the altered states that people who have encounters with wild animals sometimes describe. It's a sense that time is either disappearing or bending. Mm. Paul Dayton said the same thing. Uh, the, another altered state that people talk about is uh, 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 spatial relationships take on different form, different meaning. Well, you know, try watching an anthill on your belly for a while and, you know, the world shifts. Yeah. So, and there are other altered states that I've described in there. So what is that? What is that that I feel? I went home, I told my younger son, Matthew, he was home from college about this. And I said, I, I can't explain this, but something happened to me right then. Yeah. Or maybe not to me, maybe between me and the eagles. I can't speak for the eagles. Maybe they just were trying to check out if I was edible. Yeah. But, but, um, but something happened there. What is that thing between us? Right. And Martin Buber, and by the way, I told my son, whoever I say I am, I'm not. Whoever I was in those moments is who I actually am. And I don't have the language to describe that. Right. I, I, I love that, that line. And it's uh, yeah, it's so beautiful. Martin Buber, um, the great intellectual um, philosopher, I always have to be careful not to say Justin Bieber. Um, Martin Buber wrote a great essay decades ago called I and Thou. It was about people. Basically what he says is that, Sebastian, you and I don't exist. What exists is right here between us. Mm. It's the relationship. Without their relationship, you and I don't really exist. Not really. That was what he said. And he used the word relationship differently than many people use it. Uh, he thought of it as a kind of electricity that some people call God. Mm. That's what I felt with those eagles. That's what Paul felt with the octopus. That's, I think, probably what that little boy felt. It's what person after person that, you know, that told these stories to me felt all kinds of animals. They didn't have the language to describe it either. So I wondered, you know, um, Martin Buber wrote about people, but what about our relationship with animals? What is that? So in the book, I, I named it. I like to name things. Yeah. And I named it the habitat of the heart. I think there are two habitats. Um, there's the physical habitat that we spend a lot of time, as we should, trying to protect for other life and for ourselves. And then there's the habitat of the heart, which we spend very little time nurturing and teaching and valuing and protecting. The thing is that if one of those habitats goes, so does the other one. Mm. That's why I think that the habitat of the heart is a key to the future of environmentalism and conservation, the key to our future generally. We have to begin to nurture that and protect it and teach it just as much as we do the physical habitat. Otherwise, you have an environmentalism in which already more and more of the argument that is made is based on data. Yeah. We know or should know by now that data alone, it's very important, yeah. but data alone does not move people to action. Right. Look at climate change, what's happening with that. Look at the pandemic. We have the data. 
again and again. We've got the data. There's a philosopher in Australia named Glenn Albrecht, who I've quoted often, and he, I met him in Australia. He's a very interesting guy. He said that when you look at past social movements that were successful, uh, whether it's the gay rights or to a degree civil rights, um, uh, uh, these feminism, these were based on, all of them were based on relationship. Mm -hmm. Not data, on relationship. There was data involved, but it was secondary to our discussion of relationship, of love. And that's how he puts it. They were based on love. Mm -hmm. That's the habitat of the heart. Yeah. And we have to begin to make our argument based on more than data. And we have to make it on two things, love and also what I write about elsewhere as imaginative hope. That's not blind hope. That's imagining a future that we will want to go to and others will too. If we can't do that, we will not get to that future. Yeah. It's really amazing. I was thinking back to, I went to San Diego State in undergrad did environmental policy. And this just reminds me of a lot of the conversations that I had with my cohort and professors around, you know, this need to preserve and create, you know, really untouched nature spaces and all that. And I, you know, I, and what I kept going back to is thinking about just the opportunity. I was very fortunate to grow up in San Diego and have access to the ocean and have access to, to playing in trees and that those connections with whether it's the plants or the ocean or animals, like was absolutely what fueled my passion for preservation, conservation, and all that stuff. And I think it, you, you just spoke about it so well about those two things need to exist, and especially for the, the future generations to develop that habitat of the heart. It's amazing, yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, so, I'm also just so, I'm glad you shared that octopus story. I was, I was blown away, there's so many, so many wonderful stories and I was going to ask you what your favorite one was. And uh, that was that, that being just having also spent a lot of my time in the ocean. I can't, uh, it just freaks me out. The whole con the whole story freaks me out so much, but it's just incredible that he came away with such a. Well, you know, there's a, uh, a Netflix documentary that about 50 people told me I should watch because they knew about the octopus story and in my book, in our wild calling. And I found it very moving. I finally did watch it. And it's about a guy who has a relationship with, with an octopus over time and a diver. And it was, it was terrific. Uh, my wife got mad at him, though, mm. because he didn't protect the octopus that was attacked by the little sharks. Right. Uh, not, not something, nurse sharks, not that little. But um, she was upset with him. John Young, who is... Uh, one of the leaders in the nature connection movement knows him. And he said his girlfriend had the same response. I did too, a little bit. I confess I would have interceded when those yeah. sharks started. I did too. Yeah, it's, it's so funny. I had the same experience with you. I mean, a lot of people told me to watch it and I've heard a lot of people be upset about this. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, keep going. And, and you know, they, you can make the argument based on science. And obviously you don't want to, inter well, he'd already interceded by having this friendship with the octopus. Well, John told me the other day, I was talking about this. He's a friend of this guy who did that movie. And he said, this guy knows about my books too and likes them, which is a good thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, uh, um, and I can't remember this guy's name. It was a marvelous um, documentary. He said there's more to that story. He said that what precedes the story of the octopus is a relationship this guy and other divers had with these nurse sharks over time. And they got so close to these nurse sharks, they could actually hold them in their arms underwater. And so he was probably very conflicted. Now, probably made the decision based on science. You don't interfere. Eh, you know, maybe not. And, but I think it was also probably more so that he was conflicted. He also liked the nurse sharks. Right. So what are you going to do? Yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, that's. I'll put a link to that. I'm. I'm spacing on his name, but my octopus teacher is an amazing documentary, and I was yeah. thinking about it. I had watched that before I read your book, and the parallels are, you know, it's also a good example of of speaking about this thing that's this connection that is really hard to put into words. Yeah. Yeah. How? Um, you spoke about this a little bit, but I'd love to kind of dive in a little bit more about how how else can we develop or cultivate the the habitat for the heart. You know, as you, as you put it. Um, well, uh, during the book tour period before COVID, when I was actually traveling, yeah. but also uh, I did a, they set up a radio tour for me with Canadian stations. Okay. And they had a little script for the Canadian interviewers and all these radio stations. And they always got to the last, they're irritated. <laughs> they had this script, but it, they would like, get the, to the last, since the last question they would ask me and it really bugged me um and they would say so mr Lee, what's the what's the takeaway what's the final one thing you want the reader to take away yeah and after a while i figured out what the answer was the answer is pay attention that's it pay attention when you're around other animals when you're in nature pay full attention it's a kind of mindfulness you know um, it, the irony was that I realized that after two months of touring that that was the one thing that I'm going to leave people with. The irony is that the introduction tells the story of an encounter I had with a fox on Kodiak Island mm -hmm. in Alaska. And this fox blocked my path on the way to a lodge. It was a big black fox. that they, These are bigger than the foxes we know of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think these are the biggest foxes on, in, on the earth. And this fox blocked my passage. And I thought maybe, Jesus, is it a rabbit? Is it going to bite me? And, stuff. and it just stared at me. And when I looked into its eyes, I just was mesmerized. And um, I finally stepped forward. It stepped aside. And then I started up to I said, you want to go with me? And it went with me. It walked beside me all the way. And then it veered off into the grass. And in the introduction, I, at the end of it, this description, I say, now, I could get all mystical and stuff and say that fox is trying to tell me something. Right. Maybe. Or just maybe the fox was trying to tell me, pay attention. Right. You know? <laughs> You're in my way. Pay attention. <laughs> yeah. you were, what, what was happening is I was looking in my wallet because mm -hmm. my son was my guide there. And I was looking to, for money to tip him to you have to tip your guide. Yeah. So I, was, I wasn't paying attention. Right. And the fox stopped me. So that's, that's the main thing, is just start paying attention. Pay close attention to your companion animals. Pay close attention, even if you live in the densest urban neighborhood to the birds outside your window 
watch them. Use all your senses. Understand that you have what some scientists who study the human senses say, or as many as 30 human senses. They don't talk about five senses anymore. Not the scientists. They talk about it at a minimum, conservative minimum of 10. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But some of them talk about 30. Use your senses. Immerse yourself. Um, and when you do that, something happens. One of the themes of the book is human loneliness, the epidemic of human loneliness, right. uh, which uh, medical folks have been saying for a while that human isolation now in the world ranks with obesity and smoking as a cause of early death. And they're not only talking about suicide, they're talking about the diseases that go along with human loneliness. Uh, uh, we are desperate as a species to feel that we are not alone in the universe. So in the book, I talk about species loneliness. This is different. It includes individual loneliness. But I think that the epidemic of human loneliness, which right now parallels the epidemic of COVID, yeah. uh, I think that that is rooted in an even deeper loneliness, this species loneliness, being desperate not to feel alone in the universe. Why else would we look for Bigfoot? Why else would we look for intelligent life on other planets when Stephen Hawking says it may not be a good idea to find it? Because we're desperate to not feel alone in the universe. And this has religious implications for some people, obviously. But the irony is we're not alone. We're not alone. We're surrounded by a great whisper, a great conversation that's going on around us all the time. And we can hear it and sense it if we pay attention. And when we do that, one of the things about those eagles on the shore, mm -hmm. I realized later that in those moments, it was absolutely impossible to feel lonely, yeah. to feel lonely. And people realize that when they have these, these encounters with other animals, if they pay attention. Yeah. It's quite something. And I'm even just, I'm even just thinking about, you know, you're talking about the, how time changes and, and in this sort of, when we have these connections, just listening to you share these stories, I just felt like a loss of, I'm looking at, I just looked at the clock and just a loss of a sense of, of time, even in this sort of human to human connection. It's quite, it's quite amazing. Cool. Um, I want to, yeah, we'll wrap it up here, but I want to, um, just so readers and so listeners know, uh, where can they find our wild calling? Uh, it's available everywhere. Uh, yeah, and it's now, as of this month, it's in paperback. Right. Obviously, it's on Amazon and, and the other online services, but it should be in quite a few bookstores, too, although people aren't going to bookstores as much. It's also an ebook. It's also got an audio version. Uh, so it's easy to find, uh, and I hope, uh, I hope a lot of people do read it. Yeah. So, uh, you know... Uh, the people who tell their stories in these books, I love their stories. Yeah. It's, and I, th I think, yeah, I could just go on and on about it, but I think that it is so um, accessible, right? To any, to someone who's living in downtown New York or in the country, or like you don't have to have access to go to a national park or somewhere far away, but to, you know, connect with a pet, step outside, listen to the birds. There's stuff in here that really, I think I love that 
the core takeaway of just pay attention. I, I want to add here that it is based on a lot of science. No, oh, for sure. That there is science in it. And the recent years, this has emerged a lot in, in, in the study of, of other life, that not only animals, but trees, and, and there's a huge amount of conversation going on out there that science now has shown exists. Um, Outside Magazine did a profile of me in the book when it came out last November, and it was a great profile. I loved it. They were they gave me way too much credit for my other former books for the Children and Nature Movement, or the, sometimes called the New Nature Movement, yeah, uh, which pre-existed me. But they gave me a lot of credit, and I appreciated that. But they also said that I kind of sounded a little New Agey. Oh, and I thought that was so funny because any I grew up in Kansas, Missouri, and anybody that knows me knows I'm probably the least new agey person they know. But I had to admit, after I read that, I'll have to fess up. Doing this book, I guess, made me a little bit new agey. <laughs> and, and that's an excellent point, though, that I think it's rooted in. I think you're, again, bridging the gap between these things that are, you, it's really difficult to put into words and data. And, quantify and the science, the real legitimate hard science that's coming out around this stuff. And it's actually old aging. I'm yeah. not referring to my chronological age, hopefully. <laughs> I'm just saying that this is not new. These beliefs are very, very old. I don't claim there's anything original here. Indigenous people have known, some indigenous people have known this for a long, long, long time. Our ancestors knew it. It's it's been with us for a long time, just like those wolves right. over the generations as they turned into dogs knew something and transmitted it to us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, awesome stuff, Richard. Thanks so much for being on. Any, um, any, are you, you kind of just focusing on this book for now, I assume, or any, any next projects in the, in the pipeline or? Um, I'm working on three book proposals as possibilities, but my wife isn't all that keen on me doing another book. She saw how hard this one was, and it did. It was hard. It was worth doing, but it was hard on on me over time, yeah. and on her. But I tell her I, I have to be doing these book proposals because I have to keep that uh, the part of my mind that gets in trouble if it isn't occupied. I need to keep it busy. So that's that's why I'm working on book proposals. Yeah, well, I hope you do more books. I mean, selfishly, uh, I, I get a lot out of them. And Thanks, Sebastian. I hope you do more, too. And I hope Thank readers you. know about your book and how, how good it is. I appreciate that. And I, I really do. You know, I, I, um, I think first was introduced to you. I, had a, I don't know if you remember this person, but I had a professor named Diana Richardson at San Diego State. And... Uh, I think I was there right right around when Last Child in the Woods came out or shortly after. And um, yeah, I've been following you ever since and you've been a huge inspiration to to myself, my wife, Sonia, who we do this work with Nature Unplugged together. And um, so I just yeah. am grateful for you taking the time to be with me today and to be with us. And uh, yeah, I look forward to continuing yeah, the great. If you get up to Julian sometime, stop by, let me know. Thank you very much. Likewise, if you're, we're in Encinitas. So if you're out, if you want to do a little beach adventure. Go for, okay. go for a walk. Thanks, Sebastian. Thanks so much, Richard. Well, so that's it for this episode of the Nature Unplugged podcast. You can find our podcast, you know, wherever you like to find uh, podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, everyone. 
Um, be sure and visit www.natureunplugged.com for more information and resources. Um, yeah, thank you so much once again, and we will catch you next time. like seasons out of our control If you think you should go I will let you go oh.